continuing on this evening with our exploration of compassion. Last evening's discussion uh, concluded with some exploration about heartfully and respectfully recognizing our limitations, our limitations regarding compassion and not pretending anything in relationship to ourself or in relationship to others with the understanding that the blossoming of compassion, the blossoming of compassion and wisdom, insight, depends on us coming from a genuine place of heart. And of course, this isn't to say that we shouldn't practice compassion by making a conscious choice to do the kind and the caring thing rather than turning away from a given situation or any particular person. I had this uh, shown to me quite clearly over 20 years ago now when uh, my mother, uh, who at that point was in her late 70s, um, fell on some cement steps and uh, cut her leg very badly. And because of particular circumstances, she uh, didn't take very good care at all of the wound. And it became uh, extremely infected, badly infected. The doctor told us that if it wasn't cleaned out uh, daily for uh, a few weeks, uh, which meant at that point cleaning it right down to the bone, that she would have to be hospitalized. And none of us wanted that to happen, which meant that either my brother or my sister-in-law or myself uh, would have to be the nurse. So with this being said, um, at that time, there was uh, a moment of uh, quite an awkward silence with no one volunteering uh, to do what needed to be done. And so, by default, really, um, not by any great compassion in those moments, I volunteered, uh, simply because uh, it needed to be done, which probably should have been my first clue as to what was going to happen. <laughs> to make a long story short, um, for the first, first few days of the task, uh, at times I found myself feeling quite angry at my mother. First for falling, and then for not taking care of herself. And now look what I'm having to do. And this would come up again and again, actually, during those first few days. The anger would surface when... Um, she would in some way or another express uh, that she was experiencing pain during the cleaning out process. Or when the smell of the wound, which was quite a strong odor at that point, when the smell of the wound would touch my nostrils, I would experience moments of pulling away, of tightening. And there were uh, even some very childish thoughts coming up as, well, she's the mother and I'm the child and she's supposed to be taking care of me. And yet, all the while, through this, though this process was quite painful for her, she often expressed gratitude and appreciation for what I was doing, how I was helping her. After those first few days of resistance on my part, I soon found myself feeling very grateful for the practice during those uh, very difficult days, seeing the aversion coming and then going, amidst moments of a really, truly genuine metta and compassion coming up, along with my mother's very deep and true appreciation for being cared for. A bond was made between us during those days and habituated roles were cut through. There were
pure moments of pure presence. The seeds of compassion that had been planted so many times came full circle and were being cultivated and planted again and again in that spiraling transmission of compassion. And regarding compassion from another venue, In uh, 1996, uh, I was teaching in Poland, and there was a a retreat being offered by uh, Roshi Bernie Glassman at Auschwitz. It was the very first of many uh, that he's done since, uh, called a Bearing Witness Retreat. And it was offered on American Thanksgiving. So I was allowed to go from my place of teaching in Poland uh, and with one of the students and take a train uh, to Auschwitz to participate in this uh, bearing witness retreat. There were about 140 people there from all over the world and there for various reasons. One of the things we did uh, in the evening Uh, 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 at the end of each day during that retreat was uh, someone would read a chapter or two from a book um, uh, called An Interrupted Life. It's a book that was written by uh, a young woman named Eddie Hillisom. Eddie, uh, in the midst of World War II, uh, this young Dutch woman, Eddie Hillisom, was 27 years old. And she was living in um, Amsterdam with a group of people uh, in a large house, a kind of cooperative living situation. And she was in very bad health. And then she was taken to Westerbrook, the Westerbrook concentration camp. And then she was taken to Auschwitz, where she actually lived only briefly in Auschwitz before she died. These years of great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and paradoxically enough a time of personal liberation for her in the very midst of the scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe Eddie we could say wrote the counter scenario in a certain way her diaries are really quite an amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense extreme difficulty. So these are some of Eddie's words from her diary. I think I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word. But anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learned. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast and empty plane, with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view, so that something of God can enter you, and something of love, too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. And then at another point in the diary, Eddie wrote, Mysticism must must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. Eddie, with her clear vision, instinctively knew that she would never return from the concentration camp 
and she asked one of her friends to keep her diaries. Somehow she wanted to leave a trace behind and to share the solutions, we could say, that she found for herself. And this is from the last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I've been trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world. To accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of all the days that are to come. And she closes her diary with this. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And she ends with, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. Those that survived the camps and knew Eddie have confirmed that she was a a luminous and compassionate person to the very end. And so again, back to the necessity of respecting and honoring ourselves right where we are. At any given point, we may not feel the strength within us to feel whole, whole, the strength of feeling abundance. This needs to be acknowledged and it needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and caring might be done out of fear. Fear of disapproval or maybe fear of loss or maybe out of trying to avoid conflict or trying to maybe control the situation. Or we may give ourselves away or lose ourselves in an unhealthy way in seeming support which is actually unskillful unwholesome support of others when this is the case we're actually not able to see the situation clearly we're not able to see what's really needed with this misunderstanding our actions can create and can strengthen the unhealthy attachment that we could call codependency. And then we ourselves most always end up feeling less whole and even more depleted instead of feeling connected and clear and strong. It's also important to be aware if we're acting or giving out of some subtle or maybe not so subtle sense of getting something in return or maybe trying to create an image of ourself in our own eyes and the eyes of others as a perfectly compassionate person. If our heart, our mind might not yet be healed from feelings of lack or maybe from feelings of not enoughness. There very well may be be a misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of compassionate action. In relation to this on a larger scale, Thomas Merton wrote about what Chogyam Trungpa much later called idiot compassion. And these are the words of Thomas Merton. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. 
And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics. And to endure the betrayal of false friends. To appreciate beauty. To leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social situation. To know even just one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. Respect for our self and others just right where each of us is at any given moment and honoring the fact that a true and deep compassion grows and matures gradually. This itself is the continuing cultivation of metta and karuna. It's our inalienable right, our birthright, to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel ontologically okay being here, alive on the planet, meaning nothing else is really necessary to simply feel okay in being here, just simply the fact that we are here, alive on the planet. This is enough. Just like a tree or a bird or a tulip or the wind. It's perfectly and absolutely natural to be inclined to feel and to know this simple okayness, this isness as it's sometimes called. To know this utterly selfless isness that's intimately interwoven and interbees, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, and in truth isn't separate from anything. Because it's such a perfectly natural and wholesome inclination, it can be a way of understanding one of the reasons why some of us have been drawn to the Buddha's teachings and practices. For most of us in the immediacy of our lives, our hand quite naturally and spontaneously often reaches out to soothe the ache in our own foot, our own back, our heart. What is it that holds us back sometimes from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this same simple and natural way. Essentially, this is due to a deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate person. As long as we're immersed and blindly living in and out of these fixed ideas, Spontaneous concern for others will primarily be felt for those who fall in the range of who we think of as mine. And there may be even feelings of indifference or even more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those who are outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, and begins to mature. There's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and our understanding matures, feelings of connection and empathy blossom. As our sense of being 
a closed cell, as Stephen Batchelor calls it, dissolves. It's not that I or me vanish into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, we discover that, in fact, we're truly a cell that forms the, as again to quote Stephen Batchelor, the interdependent multicellular existence of itself. Interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. I and the sense of I only exists in relationship to you. I, me, isn't eliminated. It's transformed. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. Really, that's all there is. There's only relationship. I, me, you, them, us have never and will never exist in isolation have never and will never exist in any solid, sad, static, separate way. The notions of me, the notion of you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you begin to dissolve with the blossoming of metta and karuna begin to dissolve in relationship to the way that we go about our life, how we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally and more and more often. We begin to understand in our cells, so to say, that the needs of I and the needs of me me and I, are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And this is some, these are some words from 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's uh, not so easy, this relating to others and to ourselves with a clear and pure, compassionate heart. We have many old and seemingly new personal agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there's at least some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what is called the near enemy or what looks like or what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a true, open-hearted, caring presence. Pity is actually a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal if we look really carefully at it. When we pity, there's a subtle or maybe not so subtle wanting it to be different, 
And also maybe some feeling that I'm glad it's not me who's suffering so much. So in that case, pity tinged with a kind of arrogance. That's really a cover-up for our fear and our inability in that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. Unhealthy grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy and can lead one into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and lost in the downward spiral of this strong and often deep contraction, which if we see it clearly, it's a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and you. This fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity for ourselves, in ourself, for ourselves, or when we're caught in this self-obsessed and unhealthy grief, in those moments we're actually not experiencing any true caring, kindness, or compassion for ourselves. But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling the heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves, that kind of poor me feeling with the me being a capital me. In this place, there's actually not much, if any, capacity to act towards taking care of ourselves. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental mindful awareness can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept through the veil of identification for instance myself as a pitiable pitiful person but rather the possibility of here's pity here's grief this is what's arising it's not me it's not mine it's not who I am but it's come up how is it how is this right now again as we explored a bit together last evening Can we come close to our experience without judgment, without identification, and with interest and care, intimately, closely, feel what's occurring, while at the same time seeing and knowing it clearly? Mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path of liberation. And in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like the most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment, in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my own diary um, that comes from the same Bearing Witness retreat that I spoke about just a little bit ago um, with Eddie Hillison's diary. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha's Dharma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. 
It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman, Tetsugan Roshi, has organized the first Bearing Witness Retreat. As we walk through the camp on this first harsh gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come in contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the prisoners, as they were called. The shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere, and at moments it's in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to fully let in than the immense sadness, as it's far a far less familiar feeling and thus much less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to what this is. The sorrow and heartache are immediately understandable to me but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discord and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mani Padme Hum, which is the Tibetan mantra, the jewel in the heart of the lotus, spontaneously repeats out loud, from my heart for the Nazis a deep intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed the depth of of disconnection separation from life separation from oneself the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in living with in order to murder one let alone millions is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each one of us has the capacity to help others, from the heart, from the, from the heart of care, from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourself, and the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme in Auschwitz. I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices which are the balm for all wounds. A few years after I returned from Poland, This story was uh, put into a newsletter that the uh, Taos Meditation Group used to send out. And it was sent to quite a number of people, including some of the people um, uh, who have sat retreats with me in Israel. And I'd like to share one um, Israeli woman's response uh, that she sent to me after she read uh, this account um, from my diary. 
I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we're facing such difficulties. And she goes on to say, I was deeply touched reading your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain on the faces of the people who survived and were the parents or grandparents of of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt it was as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and German policemen came on and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again and had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop and the policeman asked everyone to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think then I only realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened even to think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect with what you experienced. I felt it is very important for me to be able to make such transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both his hands, a flag, and the book of Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life, had, have no meaning for him. I began to cry. And then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional ca- compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. So from a different culture and a different experience. Opening to compassion. And I'd like to now share some words from a woman named Vimala Thakar. She, uh, I don't know if she's still alive actually. Um, she may be. She, she's very old. Uh, she's an Indian spiritual master who was a long-time student of Krishnamurti's and who maybe still is, certainly was, uh, a very clear and powerful teacher in her own right. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. These are some of her words. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer. That what is me is quite separate from the not me. That divisions among people and nations are necessary. And yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts and theories, the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? She's quite strong in her words. I'll share another piece. The only salvation for humankind appears appears to be in in a spiritual revolution of the individual. As the source of all evil is the very substance of our consciousness, is in the very substance of our consciousness, we will have to deal with it. Everything that has been, been transmitted to our mind through centuries will have to be completely discarded. The momentum of a million yesterdays is not easy to overcome or to discard if we try to tackle it in a casual way or if we don't touch it at all. 
And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom, the coolness and ease based on what the Buddha sometimes called six-limbed equanimity, the liberating equanimity of pure awareness in relationship to all of the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors, the liberating wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the emptiness, the not-self nature of all things. And the other wing being unconditional compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, and our way of being in this world that ensues from this. This wing of awakening arising out of a clear and deep understanding, a knowing of dukkha, its root cause and the way of its end. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries from our teachers and their teachers, and their teachers' teachers, all the way, all the way back to the Buddha. This heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it so interesting and helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself, his speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In uh, one of his discourses, we find him speaking to a small group of bhikkhus about his search for enlightenment, where he also shares what his thoughts were very soon after his awakening. And this is the Buddha's, these are the Buddha's words. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the Dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And then the Buddha goes on to say, Considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Then he goes on to tell his monks that very soon after this, uh, a certain Brahma came to him and pleaded, pleaded with him. And these are the Brahma's words. The world will be lost. The world will perish since the mind of the Tathagata, accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the the Buddha goes on with his monks. Then I listened to the Brahma's pleading. And out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes and with much dust in their eyes, seeing with keen faculties and with dull faculties and with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach. And then I replied to the Brahma, Out of compassion for beings, 
Open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those who with ears show now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahma, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and in itself obviously also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self, emptiness, to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I I think is uh, helpful in understanding it is this. To know emptiness means that we know directly that life is only in the immediate presence of what we experience. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever know. And I'd like to close the uh, talk this evening with some words from uh, one of my students who I mentioned in a previous Dhamma talk in this retreat who died of AIDS-related complications. He was writing a book uh, and never finished it because he died. But these are uh, some uh, pieces from his book. July 1997 my first eight-day Vipassana retreat. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Trepidation and desire flood my soul in equal measure. Will I encounter deeply buried demons from my past? Will emotions overwhelm me? Will I be able to stop crying? In the days leading up to the retreat, it's as if my body is attempting to erode the quiet resolve of my mind to go. Pain gathers in my back, making my daily sit uncomfortable. Unaccountably, my gums start to throb and bleed. My left leg grows numb. And the day I make the two-hour drive to the retreat center, a splitting headache grips through my brain, bringing me to tears. I don't care what you do, I say out loud to my body. I'm going to that retreat. This man had an amazing sense of humor, right to the end. The retreat schedule looks daunting from 5.45 a.m. to 10 p.m. Nine sits alternating with eight walks for six days. Two half days are also full. Meals are deliciously vegetarian. The air is abuzz with insects feasting on the nectar of hundreds of flowers around the center. Before we take up our vows of silence, I tell one of my two teachers that I may need to nap during the day, and I'm reassured by the gentle understanding that I receive. Participate when you can. Rest when you need to. By our first sit, all my bodily pain is gone. Blessed silence and avoiding eye contact with others enables me to develop a cocoon of self. By the second full day, I marvel that I'm attending all the sessions without the need for naps. I begin to feel energized and even find time to incorporate the Hatha Yoga series that I learned years ago into the schedule. I sense new levels of awareness about the nature of this practice, about the Buddhist compassion. During one Dhamma talk, we're asked to consider what a nightmare life would be if there were no change. By the fourth day, questions during Dhamma talks increase in intensity. Is metta and karuna better than vipassana? In practice, is practice, in practice, is holding on to the breath different from holding a thought? If we can observe our thoughts rising and falling, 
Where do they come from? Where do they go? We create an energy of trust. My heart opens to all retreatants struggling their own struggles. Who am I to judge anyone? They are me. The rhythm of the retreat mimics the rhythm of our breath and the rhythm of nature. All around us cycles come and go, repeat and fall away. AIDS is a cycle. It's not my condition, but the human condition. It's the gift, the great gift that has taught me about impermanence. I realize how Vipassana-like AIDS has been in my life, always bringing me back to the now, always reminding me to be present. And Vipassana practice is a cycle. It's in my life and out. It touches everything I do and is nowhere. On the last full day of the retreat, during a walking meditation, I was overwhelmed with sadness for all humanity and for the planet. I cried and cried in pain. How can there ever be an end to suffering? And then I stopped and looked up at the hill behind the meditation center, my heart as though leaping open for a moment into the beauty of this life, the suffering and the beauty, all of it being held, but not being held onto. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.